while you're standing, um, grab your Bibles and um, turn to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, then we want to invite you to use one of the Bibles that's in the uh, seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, then we want you to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. And uh, there's nothing that would make us happier than to put the Word of God in your hands. And so uh, just go ahead and take that as your gift. But if you are using one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 592, and that'll help you find that real quick. Um, and so uh, we're going we're gonna to read this together. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to read about the first Uh, 10 verses together. So read this with me. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, if we are God's children now and what we, what we, uh, uh, I'm sorry, if we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and that in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, listen, this is good news, folks. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, and the one who does not love his brother. God bless the reading of his word. And so here you may be seated. We, um, we're continuing this morning our, our sermon series called Proof. It's an, it's an acronym, an acronym rather, um, uh, P-R-O-O-F. And, uh, uh, it's based on the book by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Jones. I'm not sure, but I think we have one more copy out there in the foyer. If you'd like to have your own copy, um, you can, uh, 10 bucks, you can just put, put something in the offering uh, box back there or do it online or whatever. But if you're interested in reading it, I know a lot of you are reading it right now. Um, and so we started this series two weeks ago. Pastor David talked about God's planned grace. And, and, and what that means is that before time began, God mapped out the plan of salvation from the very beginning to the very end. And specifically, he planned to adopt particular people as his own children, and he accomplished that adoption through the cross. Last week, I spoke about God's resurrecting grace. And that is to say that everyone, no matter what your mama tells you about you, is born spiritually dead. And therefore, there are none who choose by the exercise of their free will in God's way. It's not that they can't, it's just that they don't, or they've already chosen um, the, the way of darkness. God must enable us. If we're going to respond to God's grace, he has to enable us to respond to his offer of free grace, and he grant this, grants us in that moment a new kind of spiritual life 
by Jesus's resurrection. Well, we're going to build on those two truths today, and we're going to talk about and explore God's outrageous grace. Another way to say this is God's scandalous grace. Another way to say this is God's incomprehensible grace or his, as we just sang, amazing grace. That God chooses those to be saved on the basis of his sovereign will and his good pleasure. Can I say that again? That God chooses those to be saved on the basis of his good will and his sovereign uh, or sovereign will and his good pleasure and not listen to me, please get this. We talk about it all the time. God does not save us based on what we do or what we bring to the table. None of that matters in, in the economy of our salvation. Did you know that? Are we getting that at this point in the, in the, in the uh, uh, teaching here? It doesn't matter. It does, that's not what, what saves you. It's not what you do. It's what Jesus has already done. We just sang a few moments ago, the most well-known song in the history of the church, I would imagine. And that song, of course, was Amazing Grace. It's been performed by more singers than anyone could ever count, ranging from Willie Nelson to Mahalia Jackson. I mean, we're talking about a wide range of artists here have sung Amazing Grace. And almost everyone, no matter what your spiritual background, is familiar with the first stanza. We could say it together. I won't attempt to sing it for you, but Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm... I once was blind, but now I... There you go. Everybody knows it. This song has been heard everywhere. To make my case and to prove that I am an absolutely irredeemable nerd, one of the, the, the biggest, weirdest times I ever heard this song in play is, you'll recall, in the movie, I know you'll recall because you've all seen it, um, in the movie Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> right? Right? You've all seen it. It's all your favorite movie, right? In Star Trek II... As you'll recall, the emotionless uh, Vulcan, Mr. Spock, the pointy-eared Vulcan, he, he performs an act of extreme sacrifice, costing him his life. And as the grieving Enterprise crew jettisons his dead carcass out into outer space, a bagpipe plaintively plays Amazing Grace. Though the creator of the show was an absolute atheist and the show was absolutely unapologetically humanist in nature, the, the, the best response they could have to the death of an imaginary alien was to play Amazing Grace. Y'all figure that one out. If you've been in church a while, you've probably not only are familiar with the song, but you've probably heard the story of how the song was written. Raise your hand if you've heard the story of how the song was written. Okay, there's quite a few of you. It was like this, a reprobate slave trading captain, a, a captain of a slave, slave trading vessel named John Newton um, finds himself in the middle of a devastating Atlantic storm in his ship off the coast of the of Ireland, terrified by this storm, absolutely shaken, knowing the ship's going down, knowing that he will meet God. He, he falls to his knees, repents on the deck of the ship, finds Christ and dedicates the remainder of his life to fighting the slave trade in the British Empire. And that's the story. Kind of. But, how many of you remember Paul Harvey on the radio? 
Paul Harvey would always say this, and now the rest of the story. See, that's the sanitized, romanticized, Christianized version. But the rest of the story of John Newton is a little bit more messy and quite a bit more complicated. Now, before we go any further, is there anybody here who would testify that your life hasn't been a toggle switch from from sin to righteousness, but it's been a little bit more messy and complicated than that? In truth, brace yourself, buckle your seatbelt, John Newton worked in the slave trade for some four years after he came to faith in Christ. Slave trader, Christian, same time. We'll talk about that in a minute. I can feel the offense, that scandal of the gospel rising. See, John Newton didn't speak out not even a single time, not once, against slavery for 34 years after his retirement from the slave trade. Not once. 34 years. If you add 34 plus 4, you have a a time span of almost four decades after he came to Christ that he began speaking out against slavery. So the question is, was John Newton a genuine child of God while working in the African slave trade, or only after he fully renounced it. Now, every one of you, when I said that, has an opinion. And your opinion is deeply held. And, it, and, and in your mind, in some way, it's logical. I understand that. You might think that I'm going to say, well, and slavery wasn't really that bad. Well, that would be a dumb thing to say. There's absolutely no cleaning up the slave trade in which John Newton was actually involved. You can't say, well, maybe his heart wasn't in it, or maybe he was a nice slave merchant. There is no excuse. Listen to me. I want to be crystal clear on this as a pastor, mostly, but there is no excuse, absolutely none, for the genocide of the slave trade. There's none. There's no excuse. You can't clean it up. It's a terrible, terrible injustice to millions of human beings. Millions of families were separated, never to be put together again. Millions more died of torture, disease, despair. And these were human beings made in the very image of God. Nor is there any justification of John Newton's crimes to say that he was a product of his times. Oh, we thought differently back then. It was different time. Listen to me and listen good. The justice and the righteousness of God are not seasonal. I am so grateful for the four of you that agree with that. What I said was, because something happened to your hearing, I said that the justice and the righteousness of God are not seasonal. What what was just and righteous in John Newton's time is just and righteous today. What is just and righteous today is just and righteous from the beginning of time. And it doesn't matter what cultural opinion is of those things. Yet in the light of all this, there is very good reason for us to conclude that John Newton was in fact a true son of his heavenly father. And if that's true, 
And, and like me, when I was considering this, if, if this is true and you're sitting there with your sense of morality, your sense of fair play literally turned upside down, then we have the right and we must ask, how is that true? Right? Right? Fair enough? First, in order to, con- to understand how that could be true, we have to consider what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And it's these, these facts. First of all, none of us, and we said this earlier, none of us is ever saved because of our good works or performance. None of us are. You are not saved because you got all your boxes checked. Listen, I'm going to blow your minds theologically, hopefully. If you get your boxes checked, you do not need Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Y'all are thinking, well, duh, Captain Obvious, but listen. Listen to me. Most of us spend at least part of our Christian life trying to check boxes. And so I have people all the time, literally, probably every, at least every two weeks, someone tells me, I'm not ready to believe because I've still got to deal with these issues in my life. When the second you deal with the issues in your life, you ain't going to need Jesus anymore. But what we've been trying to tell you is it is a fool's errand to think that you can deal with the issues in your life. You can't. You cannot do it. None of us were saved that way. But furthermore, none of us were saved because of what God saw that we would become. God never looked at John Newton trading in lives of human beings and said, you know... That guy's going to write a pretty darn good song someday. So I'm going to let him pass. I'm going to let him kind of go beyond the velvet rope just because we really need John Newton on our team. No! God never looks down the road and sees what we come and saves us on that basis. Oh, he looks down the road, but he says, this is what my grace is going to do in him, not what he's going to do. We established from the Bible last week that you're not saved because you wanted God. Because Romans 3.11 was very clear. No one seeks for God. God is gathering dust on the shelf in humanity's store. No one wants to buy God. They want to buy a God. But they don't want to buy the true living God. Therefore, we're compelled to believe that we're saved. Listen, this is how we kind of make sense of this John Newton thing. We're saved simply because, simply because, I'm going to tell you, you are saved this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are saved simply because God wanted you. And that is outrageous grace. Because listen, I've heard some of your stories and I wouldn't have wanted you. And listen, if you want to go to coffee, I'll tell you some of my stories and say, I'm not even sure I want you for my pastor, let alone as a believer in the kingdom of God. We are saved because in the mystery, outrageous, scandalous, incomprehensible, amazing grace of God, he said, I want you. And that's it. That's it. He wanted you. God wanted us, and He didn't save us because of our good works. Even though we live, as Pastor David told us a couple weeks ago, in an economy of performance, rewards, punishments, the scandal of grace is that God has has not chosen to operate that way. 
God doesn't say, here's the standard, meet this standard, and I'll let you in the end. You know, because the fact of the matter is none of us are going to reach the standard. God never asks you, what have you done for me lately? Because he already knows the answer. And we ought to be terrified by the answer. What have you done for me lately? The, que- the answer to that question is absolutely immaterial. Isaiah 64, 6, we often quote the scripture when we're talking about uh, how worthy we are of salvation. Isaiah 64, 6 is how he puts it. Page 361 in your book, he says, We have all, we have all, listen, these words, these absolute words in scripture are very important. We have all become like one who is unclean. Now see, we're not talking about someone who needs to take a shower. In the, in the scriptures, that denotes someone who is diseased, who is l- leprous and, and highly contagious. And, and in, the, in the old cultures, when someone had leprosy or some other contagious disease, they would literally have to walk around with a bell saying, unclean, unclean, so that you would be able to give them a wide berth and not be infected by their disease. And Jesus is saying to us through the scripture in Isaiah that every single one of us needs a a bell every one of us unclean unclean in case you didn't get the point in the first half of the passage he says and all of our righteous deeds every single one of the very but he's not even talking about the worst stuff of us he's saying the best stuff of us all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment stained beyond repair Listen, you cannot improve by your attempts at moral perfection. You're too far down in the, in the score already. God is so holy, so high above us that we don't even come close. And here's the bad news, folks. God was not grading you on a curve. He's not. I mean, everyone knows I'm infinitely more holy than Pastor David. Everyone knows that. But in God's economy, that does not matter. You hear me? It doesn't matter. You know, we have, we have, in our own minds, we have a Billy Graham versus Charles Manson spectrum here. And those spectrums mean nothing to God. Charles Manson is like one who is unclean. But guess what? Billy Graham, all of his righteous deeds are as filthy, polluted rags. Wow, that's Billy Graham. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle of that Manson-Graham spectrum. Where, what hope is there for me? He doesn't grade you on a curve. All of his, te- all of his tests are pass-fail. And if you think you pass, you're delusional. God did not want us and didn't save us because what he saw we'd become. He didn't look down, like I said, and and say, oh, well, this guy's going to be valuable. Paul told the Corinthians that God clearly didn't choose them because they were wise and powerful and rich and important. That means that God didn't set out to draft the perfect dream team. He didn't. You know, I really could use a Don Litton on this team. He's got a great arm. No, that's not how it worked at all. He wasn't trying to harness your potential. This may be devastating to you emotionally, but God actually chose a ragtag bunch of losers like us. Chose a ragtag bunch of losers like us in order that he could display the beauty, the power, 
and the, and, and the grace of the, that flows from him like nothing else could. See, if he found a bunch of perfect people and chose them, grace wouldn't have looked that graceful, would he? But when, it, when he picks a bunch of liars and thieves and perverts like us, he looks pretty gracious. And the result is that he gets praised. It's not about you at all. It's about him. Let's take a, a biblical ta- uh, case study here. Jacob. Jacob was one of Abraham's twin grandsons. The other one was Esau. And Esau was daddy's favorite. Esau was the, the man. He was the perfect kid. He was this hairy, manly hunter, you know. That was what he was into. He was, he was, you know, he was always wearing his real tree hat and driving around in his Jeep. He was a ladies' man. He was an assumed leader. Jacob, mm, he was a weasel. That's putting it mildly. His name literally meant deceiver. How would you love it if your mom named you deceiver? Here, deceiver, come here, you know. He came out of his womb competing with his brother. Later, he cheated his brother out of his birthright. Later, he stole his father's blessing, and he did it by conspiring with his own mother against his aged, blind uh, old father. Later, he embezzles from his father-in-law. Oh, and did I mention that he was a mama's boy and a coward? He probably drove a, a VW Bug, honestly. You know, I'm just being honest with you. Maybe even a Prius. We don't know. I just lost all the Prius and VW people. I am so sorry. Everyone wanted to be pals with Esau. Everyone did. Esau was the life of the party. But everyone kept their eye on that scoundrel Jacob while they clutched their wallets and desperately tried to avoid him. Anybody ever known anybody like that? But Paul, in probably what is oftentimes the most controversial or offensive chapter in the entire Bible. Yeah, there's things like that in the Bible. If you haven't read it long enough, if you read it at all very long is what I should say, that you're going to find that out. One of the most controversial and, and uh, uh, kind of uncomfortable verse, chapters in the Bible. In fact, why don't you just look it up? Grab your Bible again. Romans chapter 9, page 551 is where we're going. Romans chapter 9. And I want you to, I want you to hear what this says. Actually, I want you to see it with your own eyes. We're going to begin in verse 10. And as we're doing this, keep in mind John Newton. Keep in mind yourself. Keep in mind Jacob. Verse 10 beginning. Uh, I'm starting in the back half of the verse. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born, listen, that's important, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, verse 12, he, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated Verse 14, what shall we say then? Okay, now pause right there. You need to get this. They hadn't done anything good or bad. They hadn't even been born yet. God is saying, 
Jacob's going to be in charge. This natural born leader Esau is going to follow him. And, and in, in a prophetic statement about uh, things later in the Old Testament, we won't get into that today, but he actually makes a statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then so, so Paul realized the, the truth bomb, the offensive truth bomb, he just exploded in this text. He realizes it. And so he says this in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Look at those next three words. By no means. Well, God, that's kind of wrong that you just pick Jacob, that lion, snake in the grass, weasel, deceiver, and just overlooked Esau. Is there injustice on God's part in the light of that? Paul says no. And here's why. For he says to Moses, God has said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, not on your hard work or performance, but on God who has mercy. So it doesn't matter if you're an Esau. It doesn't matter if you're an Esau. Your life, your dependency, your hope, your desperation should be for the mercy of God. We sang earlier that, that our sins are many, but the good news was that his mercy is more. He looks at an old snake in the grass like Jacob, calls him deceiver, or, or that is called deceiver, and he says, uh-uh, no more. From now on, you're Israel. You're the prince with God. And he takes all of us as deceivers, as snakes in the grass. And by nothing greater than his mercy, which is infinitely great, he says, I'm going to make you sons. I'm going to make you daughters. I'm going to make you princes. I'm going to make you princesses. God chose Jacob and rejected Esau before either child had made a moral decision or action. And Paul insists here that God is not unjust. He's not unjust. Rather, he is sovereign. He doesn't ask permission or look for a reason to dole out mercy. He does according to all that he pleases to do. And I'm telling you, if you say otherwise, you're lying. This scandalizes us. We hate this. We want there to be a ladder to climb. We want there to be like, do these five things and you'll be right with God. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. scandalizes us. We work hard thinking God owes us something. We pat ourselves on the back in our superiority because we're not child molesters. We're not axe murderers. We're not slave traders. And yet while we're busy boasting, God is busy saving child molesters and axe murderers and slave traders and perverts and gays and lesbians and Pharisees and liars and cheats and lazy bums and drug addicts and politicians and convicts and whores and Republicans and Democrats because he wants to so that his purpose in election will stand simply because he called them. And this is what John is celebrating in this text we read this morning. See it? He says that. He says, look, everybody, behold, see the love of God. Imagine it, taking it in, take it in. The love of God that we, we should be called the sons and daughters of God. What is wrong with this system? Golly, if you only knew 
who you're dealing with when you're looking at me. And yet somehow in God's mercy, he said, Mark Sharp, I want you. What in the world? I hope that we're all amazed by that fact constantly that somehow he pointed his finger at us and said, I want you. That's what John's celebrating. The love of God that enables us to become his children and that's changing us to be more like him. We should all worship increasingly in the light of this great fact. But I imagine that there's a couple of objections, objections that are brewing, percolating in the congregation right now. You may wonder if our continuing in sin, especially in the light of John Newton, if our continuing in sin and pursuit of holiness even matter if what I'm saying is true. Does it matter that we continue to sin? Does it matter whether or not we pursue holiness? You may also wonder why we ask you to tell people about Jesus. Why do we even tell you to preach the gospel and proclaim the good news if God is sovereignly electing those who are destined to believe? Well, let's tackle those this morning. On the question of indwelling sin, the things we still struggle with, and and personal holiness, I would suggest, listen to me very carefully, I would suggest the question is not, does holiness matter? Everyone would agree holiness matters, right? Right? No one's going to argue that. So the real question is, how does one become holy? Most of us spend... Each, most of our time, or a lot of our time, looking to the law to make ourselves holy. That's how we do it. We spend too much time either obsessed with the law or ignoring the law. And let me suggest to you this morning that neither option is correct or helpful to obsess over the law or to ignore the law. Neither one of those are helpful. We shouldn't obsess over the law because the Bible actually teaches us that the law of God, which is perfect and holy, is completely powerless to make us better complete Let, let's see how what paul says about it. romans three twenty. he says for by works of the law listen it's gonna set you free if you really believe what he's saying here for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight that means if you keep it all and screw up one you are doomed i don't lie i don't cheat i don't drink i don't chew i don't go out with women that do So what? So what? Listen, there is still enough wickedness in this heart of mine to to drown this nation if it were ever set free. So what? So what what you don't do? He says, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, what the law does, it doesn't tell you, hey, just do this and you'll be fine. What the law does is it sits there with a list and it goes... Oh yeah, you're guilty of that one. Look, see this one, you're guilty of that. Oh, whoa, 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 don't forget this one. You're way guilty of that. I said, oh, this one says you should be killed if you do this one, but you're doing that. See that? Oh, and don't forget these. That's what the law always does. It's always pointing out where we're wicked, not how we're becoming holy. So we shouldn't just obsess over the law, but we also shouldn't ignore the law. The scripture tells us that in the law, God's righteousness is revealed. It actually is our yardstick to hold against ourselves and know how much our lives are looking like or are as are or that are opposed to Jesus. And it's how we know what he desires. So we have to find a better way to become holy instead of obsessing over or ignoring the law. The law will not help us. It's just going to show us in HD detail how unholy we are. So we look again to first or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. 
And this is what Paul says. He says, and we all with unveiled face, look at this next phrase, beholding the glory of the Lord are being, now watch, are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image we're beholding, the image of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. By looking, we're changing. Everybody say that. By looking, I'm changing. Now say it like you just got a revelation. By looking, I'm changing. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, my transformation into a life of holiness isn't coming from the law. It's coming from the Lord. It's coming as my attention gets off all this yuck that exists in my flesh and it turns toward the grace and the beauty and the glory and the majesty and His mercy, which is more than my sins, which are many. It comes from a shift of perspective, a shift of focus. When my focus is on Him, I'm actually becoming like Him. We become holy, more like Christ, by looking at His glory. And let me just help you with this. His glory is not seen by sipping your latte and reading Jesus Calling. His glory is seen, His glory is seen by looking into His total person, His grace and His justice, His discipline and His mercy. In considering that kind of Christ, we are changed from glory to glory. And this means that we're not only initially, listen, this is really important, we're not only initially saved by grace, but we are continually, continually daily living by grace. If you're going to make it through today saved, you're going to make it through today by the grace of God, just like the way you got born into the kingdom by grace. Grace yesterday, grace today, and grace forever. Every moment of your life that you exist in heaven for the trillions of years that will follow your death, you will be held in heaven by the grace of God. It is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You're never going to graduate from grace. And you all should say thank God for that. We live daily by grace. Jesus doesn't save you and hand you the reins of your life back. He saves you to change you. Let me say it like this. We don't change so that God can love us. God loves us so we can change. We don't change so God can love us. God loves us so we can change. John said this in 1 John 3, 9. We read it earlier. And it sounds almost contradictory to what I'm saying. It says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What he's saying there is, is that, that this idea of keeping on sinning doesn't mean that you don't have struggles and you don't have, have uh, troubles like John Newton did and, and taking so long to come to the reala- realization of the criminal act that he was performing against God. But what it means is that there's, there's this constant change that those who are really born of God will be constantly drawn out of their sin, escaping the snare of the devil. If all this planned and resurrection grace and this unconditional election that we're talking about today is true, why should we even bother proclaiming the story of Jesus to the world. Why do we even preach the gospel? God's going to elect and save who he wants to anyway, right? Who he's chosen. Well, the answer to this question, why do it, is twofold. First, we share the gospel. Brace yourself, this is deep, this is profound. This is going to change your life. We share the gospel because God commanded us to. 
And I could drop the mic. I'm not going to do it because they're expensive. But I could drop the mic and walk away right now because all the reason we need to preach the gospel is that God commanded us to. That's it. We have been commissioned to share the gospel until the last one of the elect, the last one of the chosen has been gathered in. And his orders have not been altered and they never will be. Go preach the gospel. Rescue the perishing. You can't claim, listen to me, this is a pet peeve of me about people who call themselves, or or don't usually call themselves, but can be uh, kind of designated as hyper-Calvinists. This is a pet peeve of mine. You cannot, listen, you cannot claim to believe in God's sovereignty if you scoff at the orders he gave his church. Either he's in charge all the way, or he's in charge of nothing in your life. If he says, go preach the gospel, you go preach the gospel. Let me, let me help you out with it a little bit. Ezekiel says, if you don't proclaim the truth of the gospel, you are playing with fire. This is word of God. Ezekiel 3.18, God is speaking to Ezekiel. He says, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Watch these next words. And you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But watch. But his blood I will require at your hand. It is reason enough to proclaim the gospel because God commanded it. Secondarily, uh, we, as I said, we do what God commanded because he commanded it. There's no other reason to insist on one or to second guess him as treason of the, of a treason, rebellion, the highest order. But, but there is a second reason. Secondly, we share the gospel because of our zeal for God's glory. See, for too long, the church has shared Christ. We've gone out and, and knocked doors and passed out tracts and all the things we do. We share the gospel because of our zeal um, for things like church growth. It's our, it's our initiative. Or maybe we feel like we have this internal personal sales quota that we have to endeavor towards and we're trying to earn brownie points to heaven. These are lousy and ultimately doomed reasons to share Christ. I don't share Christ to fill this sanctuary. I don't. I hope it gets filled because I want more and more people praising and worshiping and loving and being in community, all that stuff. But that's not why I'm sharing Christ. We have to be compelled to share Christ with everyone so that the earth, as Habakkuk said, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's not about our building. It's about his praise. It's about his glory. John Piper, I know I've shared this with you before, so forgive me my repetition, But John Piper has said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is. And the reason missions exists is because worship doesn't. I want to tell everybody about Jesus so Jesus will have one more worshiper, one more person just filling the earth with his glory. When we share the truth of God's redeeming love in Christ... We're seeking more worshiping worshipers, adding those voices, those hearts uh, to our passionate desire to see the whole earth worshiping our God and Savior, the true King. So here we go again. Was John Newton a genuine child of God while working in the African slave trade or only after he renounced it? And I'm going to say yes. Just like you, 
just like you are a genuine child of God, as you sit here right here this morning in this congregation, trying to fool us all, as you sit here this morning, struggling to be free from your pornography problem. Just as you sit here, struggling to deal with your out-of-control temper. Just as you sit here, wrestling with wave upon wave of unforgiveness. Just as you sit here, immersed in so much greed and materialism, you can't even identify it anymore. Just as you sit here, just stuck in a place of addiction. If you are saved right now, and I believe you are, then so was John Newton. And if you'll trust the God of amazing grace, the God of incomprehensible grace, the God of scandalous grace, the God of amazing grace, and you will behold his glory just like John Newton was changed by the grace of Almighty God, you will be too. I promise you that. How can we know that he was a Christian? Because God loved him and he didn't leave him in the practice of sinning. He didn't leave him there. He didn't act like he was supposed to be there. But for his glory, he transformed him from glory to glory and he transformed him into a force to demolish the sin he once justified. What a what an attack on the enemy's territory that was. The guy that used to sell human beings worked for their freedom. How amazing. Could God do the same thing with you? It begins when you admit that you're saved because he chose you, that he gained nothing in the transaction. All he gained was another soul redeemed from death in the pit of hell. And, and for the purpose of nothing, nothing else but the praise of his glorious grace. 